I, as someone comfortable from an existential perspective, with looking in the void and going, hi, void. Mm. Void goes, hi, Dave. Now, the great thing with a void too, why are you afraid of a void? You fall in a void, there's no bottom. here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. Last week, David, we were talking a little bit and you brought up this um, comparison between the way that an Eastern man and a Western man looks at a flower, um, brought up that kind of philosophy. And I was wondering whether those kind of perspectives, whether Western and Eastern philosophy are more the same or more different. What do you think? I think they come out of different cultures who went through, strangely, similar developments at the same time for quite a while. But then later on you get the radical change. So if we look historically, so that, you know, let's look two to two and a half thousand years ago, ironically, the Greeks and Chinese were thinking about the same questions and in some cases found very similar answers despite being on different sides of the world and not being aware of each other. And yet later on... The Chinese get to near industrialization far earlier, but as a consequence of the kind of civilization they've created, they're still happy to use Confucianism because it provides very clear answers. Whereas, you know, Europe lags behind after the end of the Roman Empire, goes through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, starts coming out the other end, probably about 1200 common era, mm. into the Renaissance, everything gets more exciting. And then, in a sense, the West leaps ahead in philosophy and science, but then China has the problem of encountering a weaponized West. Mm. So it's ironic that they start being very advanced at a similar time, but then as history kicks in, uh, radically different things happen. And they kind of leapfrog, leapfrog for a bit. Yeah. It kind of highlights to me that there's a com commonality um, there is probably more commonality in human experience than we give credit to just by the mere fact that both the Greek philosophers and um, ancient Chinese philosophers you were saying were thinking of the same things. Yeah, they were really both interested in the same thing. What is a good life and what is a good society? Mm. Um, the school of thought where they really there was the most commonality and it's the school that I have a bias towards because it's the school of philosophy where you can put all the key points of your philosophy on a single sheet of paper. You don't need to, you know, carry around the 12-volume set <laughs> and open up to page 12,002 to find out the answer of what to do in a given situation. Mm. And that is essentially the school of virtue ethics. So at the same time, the Stoics were trying to make sense of how to be and, you know, Plato and Aristotle were trying to make sense of how to be. In China, we had the contrast of the Taoists versus the, you know, Confucianism, where you know, Confucianism was going for how do we make an orderly society with a very clear, complex set of rules, versus the Taoists, who came up with this idea that you need to know how to behave, and if you know how to behave, then you'll always do the right thing. So what to do is a consequence of knowing how to be. And interestingly, you know, the Taoists came up with quite short, simple understanding of how to be, the same way eventually that the Stoics did, that there really weren't many rules you need to work out. You need to work out how are you going to treat people? How do you expect to be treated? 
you know, how should you contribute to a good society? What should a good society do so that you're happy to be a part of it? And that their answers became quite small. So, you know, famously in terms of uh, Chinese philosophy, you know, Taoism had some, you know, major texts um, that are all, from a Western modern perspective, very difficult, you know, to read. You know, the famous Taoist one, I think, is just called The Way. Mm. I think that's the translation from memory. But really, you know, having tried to read a lot of these ancient texts in translation, without cultural knowledge, it's just a nightmare. So when a, a, you know, a brilliant American scholar, Edward Slingerland, wrote a book called Trying Not to Try, the title alone just had me absolutely captivated. <laughs> and in Trying Not to Try, what he captures is most of the variants of ancient Chinese thoughts related to virtue ethics. And that is, if you know what a virtuous life is, if you know how to be a virtuous person, you can deal with any new situation relatively simply. Um, and in that book, you know, you have the Confucian school coming up with very complex ideas of what is a good society, how you have to behave, that essentially leads to a relatively regimented system that suits and I'll call it the Chinese Empire because in real terms we see China as a country now. But there was huge amounts of ethnic, religious and cultural diversity in China that really, as the kingdoms came together and became China, Confucianism became the tool to get everyone to start seeing the world the same way and behaving the same way. Mm. So it made for a very orderly system. Is that because there's more specificity in Confucianism that there's less room for interpersonal error? like as in Precisely. If, yeah. You are telling people these are the ways to behave you need to learn. Confucianism will tell you what to do in any given situation. Even if you don't want to be sophisticated enough to understand the why, mm. you can just mimic the what. Now, for the Taoists, um, this was pretty pathetic. Like to them, if you didn't understand the why, what was the point? Mm. You were essentially being an automaton. You were no better than a trained monkey. So this is why Edward Slingerland became fascinated by the Taoists because their approach and where he gets the name of his book um, is you know this idea, you learn the rules. You try very hard to learn the rules. You try very hard to learn why the rules are important. And once you know why the rules are important, you don't have to think about the rules at all anymore. You can just do because you've internalized the rules. So you know, the great way um, that Slingerland describes this to get the point across and going back to our story last week of the way uh, a Western poet sees a flower, he must have it and by having it he destroys it. And all he is left with is the sense of destroying the flower. Mm. Whereas you know, the Asian uh, poet, he just kneels down and looks the flower in nature goes, isn't that amazing? Changes his position so he can see it in different light. But in doing so, doesn't wreck it. He's been careful where he's knelt so he doesn't destroy anything else that's beautiful or interesting. And then gets up and carries away the beautiful idea of it. Mm. So the idea of it is with him forever. And he can always bring back the idea of the flower. So if we look for a, a comparative story... Slingerland story he uses to explain the Chinese version of virtue ethics is amazing. Um, we have a butcher called Deng 
who was invited by a king to come and slaughter and process an ox for a great feast to celebrate an important day. And, you know, Deng is this little dude in his leather butcher's apron, sleeves rolled up. You know, he comes and bows very politely to the king. And then on the king's signal, he walks up to the live ox, you know, that has been, you know, sort of tied in place with a stake and a rope and then a collar. Mm. And Deng walks up, you know, pats the ox on the nose in a very calm way doesn't really even give the ox a chance to be worried what's about to happen and the next thing swoosh deng's cleaver has gone across the ox's throat the ox has a couple of seconds of what the heck just happened is already bleeding out from the depth of the slice from the cleaver from major arteries in its throat the ox goes down to its knees loses consciousness suddenly deng is moving it to its side and with his hands on its back is kneading its side with his knees, which is essentially acting to keep the blood moving to help pump out as much blood as possible, mm. which will make the job go better. Once it's clear he's got out as much blood and the ox is dead, the next thing he's running uh, the cleaver either side of the ox's spine and opening up the hide so he can lay the hide back and essentially make a sterile work area. Mm. Uh, then once he's got that all done and he's made his sterile work area then he starts quartering the ox and the king describes this as if the cleaver is just dancing through the ox and deng is dancing around the ox leading the cleaver to do its job as if the cleaver is never actually hitting a piece of bone and you know within whatever amount of time this takes and the king is amazed how short a time it takes the whole ox has been quartered into pieces that can you know, then be spit-roasted or you know, be barbecued or whatever needs to be done further can be done. And this has all been done so quickly and so elegantly. And the king says to Butcher Teng, you know, Butcher Deng, how did you learn to do this? That was amazing. Mm. And Butcher Deng you know, bows and, and smiles sheepishly and says, you know, well, sire, initially I was terrified of how big the ox was. And then I was terrified of the fact I was going to have to kill it. So the first thing I had to learn was how to just walk up, you know, literally say hello, say thank you for its sacrifice, and then slit its throat so fast it couldn't panic or try and hurt me. Mm. And make sure that in those few seconds I did that so well that its life ended so fast it didn't have any pain and didn't panic. And then the blood flows and then, you know, when it falls to its knees, then I can go and pump at its side with my knees to get the blood to come out. Once the blood is slowed and I know it's dead and I've done what I can, then it's time to open up its hide and peel its hide back. And that was all steps that took lots of time to learn and I made lots of mistakes. But each step I got better and better. And then I learned initially that trying to get the cleaver in the right place was difficult. I would keep hitting bone. But as I got more practice, the cleaver would just go between the bones. It would go where all I had to cut was soft tissue. And I would know how far to move the cleaver and at what angle. So eventually all I would be doing would be putting the cleaver between bones. And suddenly there would be a quartered ox. Mm. So I had to learn all the rules so that I could get better and better. But as I got better and better, I could refine and adjust to the fact that every ox is a little bit different. So in the end, all I have to do is know that I need to kill and process an ox. Mm. Now, if we look at this in terms of modern neuroscience, what he's describing is really what David Eagleman 
writes about in his book Incognito, where he talks about the power of the unconscious and that over time you burn things you need to do into the unconscious. So that all in the end, once you've learnt all the rules, you know, you need to issue as an order as a butcher is kill and process the ox. From then on, you've got so much experience, your unconscious is so well trained, all your conscious needs to do is stay in sort of a state of observation of executive control to see what's changed, to see what's different, and make tiny adjustments, but to let the unconscious get on with what it knows how to do. And this really became the Taoist approach. And what's fascinating is in Greece, we see the development of the same things in the Stoics that then gets passed on to the Stoics in Rome. The Stoics don't want a monumental rule book. They want a simple, small rule book that says, practice things until you know how to do them, and at that point, simply from an executive level, issue the order. Now, the Stoics take this further than the Taoist texts we have available. Instead of it just being things you need to do every day, the Stoics take it further and say, practice for bad days. Practice for the day when you wake up and find you've pissed off the emperor, he's taken away everything you own, all you have is your worst cloak and no money. Mm. What will you do? And you would have highly educated Stoics who would go to the market and say, you know, for anyone who can't read and write, I can read or write letters for you for a few coins. And they would go and do that for the day, practicing what it would be like to pour, haggling for how much they could earn, working out what they needed to charge so that at the end of the day they'd have enough money to buy food and they'd got through their first day of no money. Mm. So what they knew is when things went horribly wrong, because they had literacy numeracy in their head, they knew how to treat people lightly, they had internalised all these skills. If the world fell to pieces, they could still cope. So, And all they would need to do is give an executive order. In both cases, what the two schools of virtue ethics were heading towards was don't unduly be affected by emotion. Deng's fear of going up to the big ox, the sort of disgust initially of slitting its throat blood everywhere, you know, dismembering an animal. You had to get past your emotional response because these are just practical things that need to be done. In both schools, in Taoism and in virtue ethics in Europe, we have the same conclusion. Engage emotionally when it's a positive thing. If your emotions aren't helping or are negative, just practically give the order to do what is necessary, get it done, so you can move back to something positive. Does it kind of deny the usefulness of the like a negative emotion? What it does is recognize there are situations in which emotion doesn't help you. Mm. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting. So again, here I'll use a personal example to make the point. If I'm walking along with a cane and suddenly I find the edge of a bloody great hole the council have dug with a stupid fluttering you know, little flag fence two feet off the ground. Mm. Well, if the cane didn't find that hole, I'm in it. Mm. That puts my heart in my mouth and can create a huge amount of fear. Mm. Now, that negative emotion is useless. Mm. If I started to panic, I'm not going to use the cane carefully because I'm going to be worrying about the pain <clears throat> that falling in the hole could cause. Yeah. 
So in that moment, the negative emotion that comes from fear is completely and utterly useless. Mm. What I need to do is go, okay, switch on. What good is the fear doing? None. What can I turn the adrenaline rush into? I can turn it into greater sensitivity to use the cane well and to process information well. Mm. What do I need to do first? Step back a step. What do I need to do then? Sweep this whole area to find out where the edges of this danger are. What do I need to do from then on? Well, is there a way to go around the danger or do I need to turn around, go back to somewhere safe and find another way to get past this danger seeing I don't know where this dangerous thing ends? So you've got to be able to convert fear or a negative emotion into something constructive. Now, if we look at uh, military traditions, martial traditions across the world, they all use fear and aggression the same way. Mm. Not to get you out of control, but to keep you under control and moving forward to implement your training. <clears throat> the approach that you were saying the Stoics had to to preparing for like a, a bad day and for practicing and kind of being given v- very little information, let's say, that is, then allows you to extrapolate into specific situations. Seems like something that would really suit very self-driven people, but I'm not sure that I would describe everyone in my life as very self-driven and able to extrapolate broad kind of philosophies. That's the interesting thing, and we've got to look at the historical example. Mm. In Rome, the Stoic schools were the most powerful you know, philosophical schools. Mm. Um, you know, we had Stoic emperors like Marcus Aurelius, but we had lots of emperors who hated the fact that the Stoics asked difficult questions. So I think Epictetus was banished at least twice. And in the case of Epictetus... Um, he was banished to some pointless little island, so most of his students went and moved there with him and built a community. <laughs> uh, in the case of China, Taoism and this kind of trying not to try thing of getting the discipline to just do what needs to be done was very powerful. Confucianism was not tolerant of it. Confucianism didn't need everyone to have the why and to think independently. It just needed them to behave. So what we see fascinatingly in, in the ancient world where life was harder and everyone knew life was hard, is more people saw the value in having this virtue ethic or stoic approach of having a small set of rules, practicing hardship, not giving in to negative emotion, because life was always hard. And what we see in the last decade, particularly since 9-11, so a bit longer than a decade, is the interest coming back to stoicism and rescuing it. Mm. Because what Stoicism has been made out to be is a bunch of grumpy curmudgeons who always look for the negative. (laughs) Now, there's an incredible historical precedent for this. The minute the Roman Empire became Christian, the first thing the emperor did was banish all the Stoic philosophers from Rome because they were too dangerous. Well, you're going to be pretty grumpy if that happens to you. Yeah. (laughs) But they were also the greatest challenge to Christianity because Christianity like most religions, says, be docile now, abide by the rules, even if you can't see a good reason now, there'll be a benefit to you later. Mm. Whereas the Stoics had no conception of, if you tolerate garbage now, you get a nice afterlife. Yeah, see, I think that's the thing that 
probably irks me the most. I had a Christian upbringing and I know, and I'm sure people can relate to this, that you've come across people that are Christian and are extremely passive in the way that they interact with others. And it kind of leaves no room for assertiveness. Precisely. And this is why the Roman Empire, you know, deliberately destroyed the Stoics. Yeah. And that as Christianity came to be dominant in the West, the Stoics' name became mud. Mm. Because what Christianity wanted more than anything was passivity now with the promise of a prize after death Mm. to get compliance. Now, as a way to build social cohesion and docility, there's nothing wrong with that unless you happen to be a Stoic and go, this is crap. (laughs) Now, as, you know, at least a two-thirds Stoic, I think anything that says surrender being an active participant now Mm. for later is garbage. Mm. It's one of the beautiful bits of the Quran that I don't think enough Westerners are aware of, but it's the bit of the Quran that talks about God made the world and God made humans, but you have stewardship over the world and you must act for the good of people in the world and everything in the world. That there is this entreaty in the Quran to be active. Mm. And, you, know, you, you need to live within the precepts of the Quran, but you need to be an active participant. So when you know, in the modern world we hear people going, Inshallah, God willing, No, that's not allowed to be a cop-out because humans are stewards. Mm. So within Islam, there is a more obvious tension between taking on the role of being genuine stewards and being passive. In Christianity, the passivity is very much an institutional passivity of the original churches. (laughs) And it's really interesting to see that the same thing happened in China. Mm. philosophers who could think independently, who could do difficult things, who could suffer because they could see the personal reason, weren't tolerated. So Confucianism won out. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that Christianity won out in the West. So what we see is that part of the problem of telling people to be independent, to reach their own conclusions about why you behave, why you do things, is inevitably making people who become dissident and therefore dissonant to social cohesion. Mm. And the final and huge example of this is we get to the 19th century anarchists, who've also been massively misrepresented. And again, I know everyone, Mm. we've jumped 2,000 years. Sorry, we can go back in a minute. But this (laughs) is an important end point, because the return in the 19th century to this independent but community-minded thought was 19th century anarchism. Mm. We've been led to believe in the 20th and 21st century that anarchism really means nihilism, the destruction of everything, Mm. breaking everything. No, nihilism is nihilism. 19th century anarchists wanted to build a community of equals where we each individually took responsibility for our behaviour, which is very much what the ancient virtue ethicists did in Greece and Rome, and what the Taoists essentially said in China. So we've had a rebirth of ideas. Uh, and you know, 19th century anarchists became equally unacceptable to everyone because they said, you know, don't be passive now. Make something better. Take personal responsibility. Teach everyone around you to take personal responsibility. 
learn to compromise with other people who are independent, you know, which became unacceptable and the anarchists in the 19th century were smashed by the late 19th century Nietzsche. His mental health is disintegrating. Mm. He's basically mainly virtue ethicist. Same thing. Have a small set of rules about how to become the best version of you you can be. His idea of the ubermensch, the overman, Mm. it's not to be an overman over any other human. It's that the better a version of you should smash the average version of you into a better shape. Mm. You know, and he is far more ruthless on himself than he ever is on anyone else. You know, right, Christians come out of Nietzsche's writing rather poorly because of their passivity, the willingness to tolerate pain and awfulness now because there's a prize after death. And his argument is always the same as you know, the Stoics, the virtue ethicists, the Taoists. Well, you're a human, you're smart, fix it mm. and fix it now. It's almost like it comes across as a little bit like a constitution, you know, for let's say like a country has, you know, a kind of subset of rules that they establish the, the foundation of their country on and um, then then all the laws and everything spawn off from that. Precisely. And that is in a sense where, you know, everyone wants to make out there are massive differences between ancient Chinese and ancient Western philosophy. But in the main, the best of both philosophies headed in two directions, mm. toward how to be the best individual you can mm. and how to build cohesive societies. So, you know, if we look back, you know, Plato um, you know, wrote The Republic in that we get his idea of the ideal society, which is bordering on a militarized, uh, hyper-disciplined, individualism under control state mm. i would still i think have rather lived in a variant of plato's republic than under confucianism because the republic suggests a meritocratic state mm. where within the guardian class if you have the capacity to be a teacher or sort of a medical professional or a soldier you go towards where your talent lies and you contribute meritocratically because of that whereas what we saw emerge with confucianism was you know class and family mm. and sustaining cultural hierarchy without the flexibility now in some ways that was tempered by the fact that so very early under confucianism the chinese created a public service where if you had the brains you could enter it and that would move you up a level to within the public service but you were always going to be below the elite. You would only ever be a minion to the elite. Whereas under Plato with the Republic, the guardian class were the elite. And if you had enough talent, you could be part of this elite simply through meritocracy. And meritocracy has its own problems. You know, If you're not gifted enough, you can't get to a certain level and the society is only about replicating what it already is. Yeah. So there wasn't much potential in the guardian class in the Republic to transform the society to grow to be new. You know, what Plato wanted to do was the same as what you know, Confucius wanted to do, make a model to roll a perfect ancient Greek society forward in the same way that a perfect Chinese society could roll forward, not leaving room for modification. And yet trying to get a balance in ancient Europe and ancient China 
between the people who wanted a perfect society that would roll forward and the people who were essentially virtue ethicists, independent thinkers, independent behavior, burning these skill sets into their head so they could act independently even on the worst days of their life. Trying to balance these two became a nightmare in both places. Now, in China, Confucianism won because it was a good system for combining cultural norms and running a society. In the West, Christianity, in the end, won because it provided community-level, individual-level and afterlife answers that through manufacturing passivity could get social cohesion. So the irony is that the best of ancient Western and Eastern philosophy... And sorry, everyone here, to have left out hmm. India. I just don't know enough. You know, being a very serious yoga yeah, practitioner, <laughs> I've read enough of the Indian tradition to inform my yoga practice. Mm. But that is such a tiny part of the Indian tradition. I would rather not, you know, add it in. So sorry about the gap in the middle. But what we see is the thought that led to the most independent people was crushed by the thought that led to passive social cohesion under an elite who could justify control to sort of maintain how they saw the world. That's the, you know, the sad continuity of both Western and Eastern thought, that in the end it was reduced to how to control the mass. And now we're tinkering on the edges. You know, we have the rebirth of Stoicism, you know, particularly in the post-9-11 world, we're now finally acknowledging the extent to which modern militaries are trained as Stoics. And yet the irony with that is, you know, I've done some jobs of, you know, for the Australian military of helping them understand to just what extent they are trained to be Stoic. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have Nancy Sherman at West Point essentially teaching Stoicism at West Point so that people understand how and why these ideas are preparing for bad days, that they're two and a half thousand years old. You know, the Chinese now have Neo-Confucianism, which is still a control mechanism. I don't know if there's a Neo-Taoism. I certainly haven't seen any evidence of it coming out of Chinese authors. We have to really rely on people like Edward Slingerland going, well, look, there's virtue ethics and discipline across the world Mm. emerging at the same time two and a half thousand years ago. It probably wasn't initially conceived this way, but it was eventually utilised as a method of controlling a society from the elite down right Mm. so it's yeah what is the value of social cohesion that perhaps Taoism or stoicism didn't necessarily acknowledge i think people who think about how to build the perfect society who think about how to become the best version of themselves are less interested often in trying to define the world for everyone because they're unsure of what to do themselves. Mm. So I think in the average Taoist or Stoic or Nietzschean virtue ethicist is someone who has so many questions about self and perhaps society on a local small level, how are they going to treat their neighbour? How do they expect to be treated? That the arrogance to define the world for everyone is beyond their comfort zone their understanding so i think if you recognize how much time and effort it takes to become the best version of yourself you have to acknowledge that 
what right do you have and what answers do you have that would make a perfect society for everybody? You have to think a bit smaller. The other side is too is recognising that investing 20 years in disciplining yourself to be the best virtue ethicist you can be leaves you understanding that in a world where life is relatively nice, relatively easy, relatively speaking, without regular major challenges, how are you going to convince people to do the work? Mm. They're either going to want to do the work or you might as well talk to a wall. See, a part of the problem that Stoics and virtue ethicists have now, and I imagine probably Taoists too, is they're having to tell the majority of society you are soft and you are lazy, which is not going to win them friends. No, yeah. It's It strikes me, we were talking a little bit about Christianity before and how the, it, it kind of bred passivity. Passivity, <laughs> Passiv- I suppose. Passiv- passivity. Passiveness. I am a fan of how Jordan Peterson interprets the Bible in that I feel as if especially something like his book 12 Rules for Life is somewhat an example of virtue ethics and that you have a small set of rules that then you can uh, apply to many different situations. But he's come from a Christian background which is all about the way that he's interpreted the words of the Bible. Well, I would actually argue maybe turn that on its head and say this is someone who looked into the void Mm. almost at the level of an existentialist going, Mm. come on, void. Show me what you got. Mm. And and we'll go into this a bit deeper in a minute because it, it's very interesting. <laughs> you know, the void is a fascinating thing. Mm. It seems to me that he looked into the void and simultaneously found the underpinnings of a virtue ethics mm. or a stoicism. I'd say virtue ethics mm. because there are Christian virtue ethicists mm-hmm. because of the historical problem between virtue ethics and Christianity, stoicism, Christianity. Yeah, it's hard to work exactly which words to use mm. with Jordan Peterson. But it seems to me that he had a lot of his philosophical answers, but the void still scared the crap out of him. Mm. And he found Christianity, in a sense, to shut the void up. Now, for people out there, you know, some people have very much experienced the void up front. Other people seek the void. So there used to be an amazing teacher in Asian studies at Adelaide University called Brian Victoria. Mm. And Brian was an amazing guy. He'd been, from memory, army intelligence in the US Army. After that became a Zen Buddhist and ended up teaching in Asian studies as a very committed Zen Buddhist. <laughs> and at the time I was you know, doing a lot of work on existential philosophy and we used to have great fun winding each other up. <laughs> and I'd go, you know, Brian, have you found the void yet? <laughs> And you go, well, no, I'm still looking for that peacefulness with you know, the universe. I'm going, I don't get it. As an existentialist, the void came up, smashed me about the head and said, hey, kid, there ain't no meaning in the world. Mm. Cop that, whack. Mm. So depending on how you perceive the world, how you want to make sense of it, the void can either be there and be unavoidable, <laughs> from a Buddhist perspective, can be the place of comfort with the nothingness that you seek from a christian perspective be very frightening and from jordan peterson's perspective be something i still struggle to understand how he is combining 
aspects of virtue ethics and Christianity that, to my mind, cause a permanent tension to mean that he has to live in permanent tension. Yeah. I, as someone comfortable from an existential perspective with looking in the void and going, hi, void. Mm. Void goes, hi, Dave. Mm. Now, the great thing with a void too, why are you afraid of a void? You fall in a void, there's no bottom. Endless freefall. Yeah. What can it. possibly go wrong? You're not going to hit anything at the bottom. Now, there's no land to stand on. Who cares if you're doing somersaults? But then it is so scary, I think, precisely because then you don't understand why it's worth putting effort into the things that you Precisely. Do. Mm. Like, it's so easy to be born into a society that defines social cohesion, defines socially acceptable meaning, mm. and just tick all the boxes. If you can make yourself believe that, which is the point of Christianity... It's the point of Confucianism. It's the point of most major religions. Mm. It's the point of most major political systems. We are going to put in front of you answers that 99% of people believe in, that help 99% of people live lives where they colour inside the lines of acceptable behaviour. Now, if you can be in that without too many big questions, good luck to you. Now, if you happen to be the weird blind kid who works out, hmm, most of the things I hear adults talking about seem stupid. (laughs) They're relying on this world they can see, where because they can see it, what to do next is always obvious. Yeah. Whereas I'm going, most of what they say is illogical from my perspective being blind. Mm. And all these supposed opportunities you have if you buy into this rule set are not going to be available to me as a blind 19-year-old. So why would I buy in? Oh, okay, I'm an outsider. Hey, there's this guy called Nietzsche. Awesome. Mm. There's this thing called virtue ethics. Awesome. Hey, there's Camus and Sartre. We've now encountered existentialism. Mm. Awesome. Meaningless as normal. Awesome. Because I would argue what I see around me, well, duh, I'm so used to being in a sighted world, I say I can see when I can't. <laughs> what I perceive around me is people where the answers they've been given work often enough they buy into them. Yeah. So the power of meaning is not that it's real. The power of meaning is that everyone thinks it is and that provides continuity and social cohesion. And that a lot of people go, well, okay, it's only because everyone agrees that's meaning. And, you know, Christianity does that too. You know, it accepts that the physical world is and that faith is and how human behaves is. Mm. You know, there's a, a brilliant American philosopher, a guy called Dale Jaquette, and he came up with a combinatorial model of ontology. So he calls it a com- combinatorial ontology. Mm. What it is is, okay, we're sitting here at a table. Mm. Yep. Yeah. There's carpet on top of the table. Yeah. The under the carpet is timber. Mm. The frame is timber. Mm-hmm. What are the legs made of? Timber. Uh, what's on the floor? Carpet. What's under the floor? Uh, probably wood. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now the point is because you and I can agree enough things fast. Mm. It means both of us are here, yeah. and the table's real. Yes. So. Dale Jaquette's idea of a combinatorial ontology, man, we've got so far from the ancient world. But I think this is powerful because (laughs) in the ancient world where so many things were unknown, Mm. there was never anything as clear as a combinatorial ontology. Mm. But there were lots of people going, what can we all agree we know is here? That's, That's what, in a sense, virtue ethics got to, what Stoicism got to, what Taoism got to. Mm. Can we agree on some things and accept that other things will be down to individual experience? Mm. So, you know, if you went away next week and flew off to a country and you had all these experiences, 
I'd so look forward to hearing all your stories. Mm. But we would not be able to agree on a combinatorial ontology about the place you've been. Mm. You could describe to me that there were different kinds of tables and different kinds of rooms. And they'd be like, well, that's cool. And because we can agree on enough things, and I know you to be a person that tries to describe things as he experiences them, we could nearly agree that exists together. Mm. But until I go there and come back with my experience and we can compare, we couldn't have a combinatorial ontology about that place. Yes. So the wonderful thing about the idea of a combinatorial ontology is it's only as good as the people who contribute to it with shared experience. So to my mind, this is the best way to build any kind of social cohesion or shared sense of meaning. And that is you don't kid yourself that meaning is deep and real. Mm. You acknowledge meaning is the consequence of our similar and shared experiences. Mm. Which is what this whole talk has highlighted to me is, again, that the similarities between this Stoicism versus Christianity, Confucianism versus uh, Taoism is like the fact that it was happening on complete opposite sides of the world yes. is is such good evidence for a commonality in human experience. Yes, and that experience is this incredible driver. So if we look at modern philosophy where it's starting to realise it needs to understand neuroscience, mm. we get people like Colin McGinn talking about the embodied and embedded argument that a brain slash mind is in a body and because it's in a body, it is embedded through that body in the world. So everything we think about, we think about because we're thinking inside a body that's functioning in the world. So our combinatorial ontology is a direct consequence of knowing we're sitting mm -hmm. on chairs, yeah. comparing what it's like to be sitting on chairs, talking about the table. You know, we can't escape. So you know, I still remember having to study Descartes. I think, mm -hmm. therefore, I am. Yeah. And from the first 30 seconds it was in my head, I'm there, no, you got it the wrong way around. I am and I am so grateful I can think. Mm. But it's the I am. You know, and philosophers will go, well, how do I know I am? Well, <laughs> I'm happy to just use the combinatorial ontology. Yeah. And go, you here too? Yeah. Now, okay, if we take movies like The Matrix where what colour pill did we take and what mm, machine are we hooked yeah, to? Yeah. Oh, who cares? The it's, reality is, is if we're both seeing the same world and we can build a combinatorial ontology, mm. that is enough meaning to feel meaningful and to feel socially connected. Philosophers get so caught up in having deductive reasoning as opposed to inductive reasoning that yes. it becomes such a ridiculous argument that goes on forever. So yeah. it's perfectly reasonable inductive reasoning for your combinatorial ontology that we are here. Yeah, and if you and I are working as effectively as we can together in this inductive combinatorial world mm. and we suddenly discover, hey, dude, do you think we might be hooked to a machine and we've taken the red pill? Mm. Well, then because of our combinatorial ontology, we could go find out if the world's bigger. Mm. But always knowing that being embodied and embedded and relying on a combinatorial ontology always gives us a tangible point from which we are centred within the storm of being. Mm. So we're never at sea. We're never free-falling in the void. You know, if you and I are both falling in the void, but we're moving in parallel, who cares what the void's doing? Mm. If we suddenly discover that a hundred of our listeners can go, hey, and send in a question and go, mm. well, guys, you know, what do you think about this? 
we've just extended the combinatorial ontology. Mm. And as long as you're extending the combinatorial ontology, but always leaving a degree of scepticism, that no matter how good your answer is, it's still incomplete. Mm. And that that is fine. Anyone who thinks they've got a whole world view is either a liar or demented, in my opinion. <laughs> now, too much certainty means I ain't going to trust you. Mm. So listeners, if you want to get stuck into anything I argue, feel free. Mm. But if you give me a 100% answer to anything, you're not going to convince me. Mm. If you give me a question that demands a 100% answer, I'll try and answer enough to get you into a combinatorial ontology <laughs> as, you know, as being an embodied and embedded mind. But more than that, you know, there's no chopper chop beyond that. Mm. One thing that I like to take away from Jordan Peterson is his sense of responsibility and meaning found in things that may initially seem mundane where your personal sense of responsibility and progress and success in a, a broad term is what gives you meaning mm. and that isn't necessarily linked to anything well, you can take that as you want. It doesn't have to be yeah. necessarily linked to something spiritual, which no. is what I took away from it. Yeah. Um, and I actually find that deeply empowering. Mm. So how do you reconcile that with the void, I guess, in some sense? Is that is it okay to just say, hey, we're falling and that's that's okay, but I'm, I am fulfilled, let's say? I think the key thing that came out of all the questions being asked in the ancient world, whether it be East and West, mm is why am I here and what am I meant to do? Mm. And that has never changed. Mm. And the most reliable answer to those questions is, I'm here to work out what has meaning for me mm. and how I can live best with other people. Because, you know, most humans, the vast majority of humans, are far happier when they get along with the people around them and have shared beliefs with those people. So at the very least, you are responsible to work out who you want to be and how to fit in a world of other people. And if you do not engage in that, your level of difficulty or the passivity that will be you know, forced upon you mm. will be more extreme. Mm. So that when you have a moment of lucidity and go, what did I do for the last five years and why did I do it? Um, you know, I know it sounds mean, but you either switch on now or feel the pain later on mm. when you don't get the choice and the world bites you. So I would always argue for switch on now, take a little bit of control over who you want to be, mm. how you want to be, how you want to connect with other people. Because if you don't, at some point, the passivity of being shaped by others for their ends, you will inevitably have a wake-up moment where you go, how am I a product of my own actions or beliefs. Mm. Oh, I'm not. And if you're not, what are you? That's a big scary question. Yeah. If I'm not a product of my own actions and beliefs, what am I? And I think it's always better to be a product of something you value, something you want to be, how you want to treat other people, you know, how you want to shape the society you're in, than it is to discover you are nothing but a passive consequence of other people's mechanisms of control. Mm. And it probably doesn't matter that there isn't an objective morality in that sense. Well, that's a whole other big horrible question. Yeah. I would argue that even if an objective morality is possible, 
with our limited experience and understanding, we would never know with certainty. And if you've got the arrogance to say you've found it, <laughs> that suggests you've hit an end point of personal and human development, which means I'm automatically going to ignore you anyway <laughs> by saying that there's an end point because if there's an end point, we've lost the ability to be sceptical. And if we've lost the ability to be sceptical, then we've lost the ability to improve. So I'm a naturalist, so I'm sure people can write in and, and debate me on that also. But I think the closest that you can come to that is saying that our morality spawns from a like an evolutionary basis of morality in, in some sense that like our, our social value, which is perhaps ways that we find mates, is determined in part by our morality and that's the function that it serves for us as animals in some respect. So that kind of pairing with your combinatorial, combinatorial ontology. ontology seems to really, they actually work um, really well together because if enough people even in a small society are found to believe the same things even as individuals but then finding that they have a common experience and then common morality based on that it serves a good evolutionary purpose that they'll please one another socially absolutely mm. the, the only hassle with that is of course if they just accept rather than question the legitimacy yeah, so that's the thing yeah so yeah and we can do a whole podcast on this at some point if you want but mm the whole nature nurture question mm -hmm. you know we really are at the point now of beginning to see the evidence that it's not nature or nurture mm. it's nature via nurture mm. that immaterial of what genes you have what you experience will turn them on or turn them off so that experience is even more critical than the genes you know if you have genes that give you a you know, predisposition to alcoholism but you're in a society where there's no alcohol. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. The genes are irrelevant. Yep. So experience is always more powerful. And the most powerful thing in experience is to not experience the world passively, but to actively question its legitimacy and go, okay, is this a perfect answer? No. But is it grounded in enough experience of myself and others? Does it get you know, better outcomes for people? Does it enhance human flourishing? Again, we haven't really gotten to flourishing today, which is another <laughs> massive argument. Yeah. But really, if philosophy does not enhance flourishing, what's the point? Mm. Yeah, religion that leads to passivity is claiming that you will flourish once you're dead. Now, sorry, that's not an acceptable answer to me. Mm. If I can flourish now and when I'm dead, if I believed in it, you know, an afterlife, that would be the combo I'd want. Mm. So something like in Islam, the idea of stewardship where you can flourish now and flourish later. Mm. Now, it seems for me from my limited knowledge of Christian scripture, there is nothing in the Bible that says you can't flourish now. It's the institutionalized form of religion yeah. that says you will be passive now. So we need to draw a distinction too between philosophies, ideologies, and the people who manipulate them for their own outcome. Yeah, and just the interpretation, even, even perhaps the innocent interpretation of those scriptures that then can Im impact others so what i do want to finish up on is it seems that we've highlighted that the west is maybe heading a little bit more toward that individualism again and there's some pragmatism that you've highlighted that we can adopt where is eastern philosophy now are we are they still confucianism is that where that's kind well, of china why, talks or? about neo-confucianism mm. But the one thing that Chinese scholars seem to agree on at the moment 
is that China is in the middle of a moral crisis. Mm. That historical Confucianism doesn't you know, exist in its original form yeah. because Maoism blew it to pieces. Yeah. But that there is still you know, the need for hierarchy, system, order, a society functioning. Mm. That Neo-Confucianism is the most available option because it taps into the old, it taps into the tradition of things working. Mm. But this is sort of the great thing of our time. In the West, we've maybe taken individualism to the point where people feel lost and alone. Mm. You know, the East is going, well, we don't want to be this collective. So it would seem to me that once again, both sides are looking for balance. Mm. And in the West, you know, we can be more upfront about the balance because we're arguing from the perspective of overprivileging individualism. Mm. Whereas at the moment, the East, for the sake of you know, a large number of authoritarian regimes, is still overprivileging controlled collectivism. And I won't say it's a genuine collectivism because a genuine collectivism, as I would like to appreciate it, would be 19th century anarchists mm. saying, how do we work together to make a society where we all participate we all hold ourselves to account and therefore live well together. Mm. Well, we're not seeing that in China. We're seeing an enforced collectivism. And by the nature of being enforced, there's not enough questions about why. There's just a lot of people saying, you know, what other people should do so society is nice. Mm. Well, nice for who? Can we look at a completely different political landscape, but Japan in the modern age, which still has this basis of being respectful to your society before the individual mm. and it's all based on almost not being a nuisance in some respect. Mm. I admittedly don't know, I'm, I'm just questioning if you do, what their opinions are on their individual morality. Is it is it still kind of collective? That's the fascinating thing with Japan is they are fascinated with 18th, 19th century German philosophy. Mm. You know, they have more scholars working on Nietzsche and Kant than probably the English-speaking world. <laughs> so they have been asking questions about what does it mean to be modern? What do you keep from tradition? Mm. So it seemed to me in Japan is an ongoing, quiet, elegant debate. Yeah. Don't risk social cohesion. Don't evolve fast and break anything. Perhaps they should be changing faster to give people more choices in their lives. Mm. But they're certainly asking the big questions in an open and honest way. And what more can you ask? You they know? run a dichotomy in terms of their religion and technology. I Precisely. Mean, so. so again, some societies are better at accepting you don't need everything to reconcile. Mm. If the bits themselves are interesting and help you stay on a worthwhile path, explore the path. Mm. And really, you know, the virtuous, the Stoics, the Taoists, they didn't think they had absolute answers. They just thought they had good enough answers to warrant continue going down the path. So that scepticism, it seems to me, of thinking they've got perfect answers mm. is something that the Japanese, from their experience of isolation and then you know, leaping into modernity and then the experiences of militarism and World War II, nuclear warfare, having to rebuild as a democracy... They've been through so much that there is an openness to quietly value or evaluate mm. things and determine whether they have good use value and good spiritual value. Mm. And that they don't seem to have any problem going, well, some things have good use value, some things have good spiritual value. And, well, scepticism can tend to have a bit of a 
it can be a bit of a dirty word. What I'm wanting to call this uh, when I'm hearing it is pragmatism. You're kind of just taking that you enjoy these two things. You're able to go mm. down two paths and then you can reconcile that. It's just pragmatic, yeah, practical. Um, and I would maybe encourage that even from a political point of view that not everyone has to follow a certain left yeah. or right ideology because I certainly have ideas that align with either one. I mean, how many times... This is getting a little bit off track, but there are certain policies that I think we associate that if you believe this, then you must be left. And mm. then if you believe this, you must be right. But you can actually reconcile two different Precisely. political beliefs in, in, in a whole idea, I guess. Yeah. So you need to accept dichotomies. Yeah. All right, David, that's been very, very interesting. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Tim. It's been fun. Excellent.